Hello. Before we begin, I'd like to just take a minute of your time to ask for your help to support the Tally Room. I've been working hard to bring you coverage of three big elections over the last six months through this podcast and the Tally Room website, and this has been largely supported by generous donations from readers and listeners. We're about to enter a quiet period in Australian elections, with no more state elections for a year and a half, but there will still be a lot of work to do at the Tally Room, analysing electoral redistributions, preparing election guides and covering whatever comes up, such as local council and territory elections. So I'm asking for your help to keep this project going during this quiet period. I'm planning to keep up this podcast on a slightly less regular schedule while covering other electoral events over the next year. You can go to patreon.com slash tallyroom to sign up. As an added bonus, if I can get to 150 donors, I am planning to start a spin-off podcast covering historic elections in Australia, starting with the first six elections held after Federation. Thanks once again for your support and on with the show. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the results of yesterday's federal election, which saw a largely status quo result, completely at odds with the polls. I'm joined today by Kevin Bonham. Hello, Kevin. Hello. So we're recording this episode at midday on Sunday, 18 hours after polls close, just to give people a sense of how up-to-date our information is. Um, All of the polls we saw in the last few days of the election predicted a Labor win, albeit not by much, with the election day news poll giving Labor 51.5% of the two-party preferred vote, uh, as an example. So this looks to have been about two points too strong for Labor based on the last numbers that I saw. Labor's only managed to win a small number of seats, and they've uh, lost a number of others, including some in places like Queensland and Tasmania. The result wasn't a disaster for either the Labor Party or the Coalition. This is certainly not a landslide. And it looks like the result could look very similar to the slim majority won by Malcolm Turnbull's Coalition government in 2016, or it could result in a hung parliament. Kevin, how harshly should we judge the pollsters for this inaccuracy, and should we have seen it coming? It looks to me like uh, the the error might end up being about three points on the two party preferred, just based on uh, some some seats are not currently included in the two party tally, and um, this is the first time we've seen this kind of um, systematic failure of polling primary votes uh, in Australia across all the pollsters at federal level. And the only real sign that we had that that we should have seen it coming was that they were uh, all getting the same thing. There's a phenomenon known as herding where, in this case, we had a ridiculous case of it where I think the last 18 polls in a row, including the exit poll, all had Labor uh, somewhere between 51 and 52% to party preferred. When pollsters have a very similar uh, range of results to each other, uh, that increases the risk that the they're actually all wrong. That was really only a sign of uncertainty. There was also herding to a smaller degree at the end of the 2016 campaign, and in that case, they were all right. So uh, there wasn't really any basis for saying that the polls were wrong in a specific direction. It could have just as, for all we knew, it could have just as easily been that they were all herding on 51, 52, and that Labor was going to get 55. Uh, we, we, We had no way of knowing which way it might jump. There certainly was a little bit of evidence starting to emerge that we, you know, there were a few blog posts kind of talking about this herding problem and saying, I'm not sure I trust the polls. One of the things I found interesting is we got a lot of seat polls right at the last minute. And I remember thinking that quite a few of them 
didn't really fit with Labor winning a majority of the vote. And at the time, my first instinct was like, well, seat polls are not very accurate uh, and these these polls can't all be right. But I'm, I'm now wondering, I mean, I haven't had a chance to do the analysis. I'm now wondering whether maybe some of those seat polls were possibly more accurate and it did give us a better sense of what was going on. And we kind of, the seat polls had done so badly in 2016 that we haven't really um, trusted them this time. But it was the national polls in the end that, that had the problems. Yes, well, the, the, I think the seat polls are, are also going to turn out to be quite inaccurate when we when we crunch the numbers on them. But they they did show a, a pattern of uh, of some Labor seats being in trouble and uh, lots of you know sort of like a sufficient swing. They they seem to show a sufficient swing on average in coalition seats, but they they also uh, curiously weren't actually showing. Uh, Labor winning very many of them. They were only showing the odd the odd win for Labor here and there. Um, the seat polls skewed massively to the coalition in 2013 and somewhat to the coalition in 2016. So when these seat polls came out, it was uh, uh, somewhat difficult to believe them given the uh, the, the past poor record of these uh, of these seat polls. By my count, we have seven seven seats that are considered still in play. Uh, those are Bass in Northern Tasmania, Boothby in Adelaide, Chisholm in Melbourne, Cowan in Perth, Lily in Brisbane, and Macquarie in Wentworth in the Sydney region. Uh, you've also mentioned Eden Monero is looking like maybe that one's in play as well. So we have this series of seats. Uh, do you have a sense of like what timeline should we be expecting these seats to kind of get resolved? Uh, these are seats where the, they'll gradually become clearer with the unfolding of uh, of uh, um, postals and uh, out of electric pre-polls over over coming days, and and as these counts go on, some of them will uh, become locked in and be called. But uh, it wouldn't be. It's quite common to see. Uh, one or two hanging around for for a couple of weeks and perhaps even go to uh, recounts. As of last night, uh, Macquarie was projecting uh, right on the wire, so uh, that that's one that uh, that may uh, be very close. Uh, Wentworth seems to be in very little doubt now. Dave Sharma has quite a large lead. If we take those eight seats, my understanding is the coalition has seventy three seats and so to get to 77 which you probably need for a stable majority they would need four of those eight seats so they, they have a decent chance of getting to a majority but it's by no means guaranteed yes on on my list uh wentworth if they win it gets them to uh to 75 and then they'll need some out of uh chisholm boothby macquarie are the most uh uh, likely suspects, although one uh, bass is also in a sort of a sliver of doubt because uh, uh, currently there's a live lead of only 320 votes and uh, that's going to blow out a bit when hospital votes are added and there's no reason to expect that Labor can outperform the Liberals and the post count in that seat, but um, the modelling is going off 2016 and in 2013 the Liberals didn't perform so well in the post count, so it's uh, not so uh, so clear, particularly with Labor having the sitting member. So that's going to be probably taking most of the week to resolve most of those seats, and maybe there's one or two that take a bit longer. Sticking with the House of Representatives, the vote for minor parties and independents is up over 24% for the first time. 
uh, in kind of modern Australian political history. The Senate was has been much higher at much higher at recent elections, but that's the highest we've seen for the House, at least on the initial count. It does suggest, like, while there are some problems for minor parties, the desire to vote for someone other than the major parties has not at all gone away. Yes, and also the uh, the strong performance of a number of uh, of independents, although the independents weren't quite as uh, successful as was thought in the lead-up, but the, the overall vote for independents is up. I think that may have been one of the problems that the polls had was working out how to deal with someone like Clive Palmer's United Australia Party and whether they get named in the poll or things like that. In some polls, it does appear that their their vote was overstated and in the end at the moment, they're looking at about 3% nationally and possibly not winning any seats at all. Yes, um, the, the pollsters also um, overstated, some of the pollsters overstated the vote for uh, One Nation as well. And I think that the problem there was not taking into account that One Nation were uh, not running in every seat. So had final essential poll had One Nation on 6% and that was probably because they weren't taking account that they were, weren't running everywhere. News poll had them correct on uh, on 3%. Um, yes, yeah, so United Australia Party, some... Some pollsters do seem to have overestimated them a lot. A lot of them had them more or less right. So uh, they don't seem to be a big part of the, the polling problem. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, and then I guess the other the other thing that could be of interest to people as well is the Senate. So at the moment, there's pretty much in every state, there's at least one seat that's undecided, but the Senate count overall does look reasonably good for Labor and the Greens, while a lot of the minor parties that had seats on the crossbench have gone backwards. Yeah, so the minor parties have generally been uh, eliminated with the exception of uh, uh, Jackie Lambie in Tasmania, who very strongly appears to have won, and uh, One Nation in Queensland are uh, in the race for one of the final spots with a fairly good chance. Um so apart from that, we've seen um, oh, there's also a, a slim possibility that a a, um, a micro party might pick up a seat in Victoria, maybe Darren Hinch, but it's uh, it's not looking very positive for him at the moment. It seems like the Liberals are too far ahead of him. So Hinch polled very poorly, but there's there's no like clear favourite for that seat. Like even the Liberals are on like forty percent of a quota in the lead. So while he's polled very poorly, we we can't rule him out quite yet. No, not yet. But I I, I would suspect that the Liberals will come up in in um in the post count with postals and so on, and uh, that that might put them in a clearer position. But and Hinch would have a very large amount of work to do on on preferences, which will be uh, not very likely. But uh, maybe you know maybe if he gets ahead of Labor, he picks up preferences off their how to vote card, which some people may have actually followed, and who knows but um, the, the, it's not, not a very good situation for him at the moment. So my take at the moment is it's quite possible for Labor and the Greens to get to half the seats that are up for election. Um, probably the dream scenario for them would be to also for the Greens to pick up the seat that's currently held by the Liberals in the ACT. That seems pretty unlikely. Um, but if they do get 20, that, that does put them in a good position for the next election and does mean we kind of maintain the status quo that this kind of the centre alliance and people like that are um, kind of hold the balance of power and are able to block legislation uh, in cooperation with Labor and the Greens. So while the government has been re-elected, they, they haven't really improved their position in the Senate except to kind of consolidate um, 
some of the right-wing minor party senators who were more likely to vote with them anyway. Yeah, the best uh, the best outcome I found for the for the coalition in the Senate uh, involved them needing uh, probably uh, four votes out of six to pass things. With those six being two Centre Alliance, two One Nation, uh, Corey Bernardi and Jackie Lambie. That was that's the best that I think they can get to from here. Uh, the worst case scenario is that uh, they need all those. They might need all those six votes to pass things, which would be pretty uh, difficult. I would think in a lot of a lot of matters. Regarding the polling failure, there's probably some things that should be uh, discounted straight away. One of them is the idea of a a late swing. There isn't any evidence of a late swing in what I'm seeing. It seems like the the swing in the uh, pre-polls was actually slightly larger than the swing on the day. Maybe that's evidence that the Bob Hawke effect was real. I don't really believe that. No, the, the, you you can't say whether it was the whether it was Bob Hawke or whether it was just the fact that the um the the pre poll vote increased so much that it's just not the same bunch of people pre polling and the same bunch of people posting on the day and that poll, uh, voting on the day and that that by itself could have been uh, could have been enough to cause the the difference which uh, of my figures is currently running at about one percent so i don't know about uh yourself because none of us have the time to follow each other's coverage on election night but i was particularly cautious last night to call close races that i may have otherwise called and the abc called for example um where there was a large pre-poll vote and if the pre-poll vote acted um in an aberrant way that seat could come back into play in the way that happened in Wentworth in the by-election and happened in a couple of seats in the Victorian state election. There doesn't appear to be any evidence of that happening at this election. Is is that your understanding, that we kind of we were cautious about it and we were aware that we had this big unknown question, but actually, like, in the end, the pre-poll votes mostly behaved similar to how they behaved in the past? Yeah, I didn't see any seats uh, doing sudden uh, bounces in and out of play when uh, on the pre-polls coming in late at night. It, it seemed that that they were just the swings in the pre-polls were similar enough to the swings in the booths that it, that it didn't make a difference. Whereas uh, in uh, Victoria, particularly, and also in the Wentworth by-election, there were these uh, very large differences that. In the case of uh, Victoria, seats that were projecting to uh, to sort of like fifty four to Labor with with forty percent counted in some cases didn't actually fall. So uh, um, that we didn't see anything of that kind uh, last night. But I was also you know sort of very cautious with you know sort of like someone was you know, fifty four ahead with forty percent counted. I was saying no, I'm not. I'm actually not going to call that yet because of what we've seen in the past. We need to be careful about these pre polls. Do you feel like now? Now that we have, assuming there isn't another massive increase in pre-poll next time, now that we have a precedent and we have a benchmark for this larger pre-poll vote, we can kind of go back to making calls more efficiently and more quickly? Or do you think this isn't like an ongoing problem? The question is whether the percentage of pre-polls is going to uh, continue to to increase still further from, from what we have now. Um, and because the, the increase this time was quite dramatic, but partly caused by there being uh, three weeks of pre-polling. If the if the rate of pre-polling will actually settle down and stay relatively the same from election to election, then uh, it should be much easier. The other thing there is also that there's no evidence that um, 
that voting intention move very much during this campaign. It's, it's elections where you get a move in voting intention during the campaign that this pre-poll issue becomes more of a problem. Yeah, and there's no evidence that people are voting differently because they're voting at pre-poll, right? It's just a distribution thing that people are voting earlier. Um, so, I mean, I expect we may see a bit of a push to change pre-poll voting, possibly reduce it by a week. There's occasionally talk about tightening up the excuses, but that seems like something that's less likely to happen. What are your thoughts about any reforms that might be useful in the area of pre-poll? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that was how that will go. I, I, I was sort of thinking during the uh, the, the campaign that you know, three weeks is uh, too long; it's too much of a nuisance for the AEC in terms of uh, counting. But I, I think they've actually done pretty well with being able to uh, to to get the the pre polls uh, counted uh, on the night. Um, I haven't looked around all, all seats to see if there are many seats with missing large pre-poll booths, but certainly for the seats that matter, they... There wasn't they, many. No, so for the seats that matter, they seem to have done a good job of, of counting them. So people do worry about it in terms of the things during the campaign that that might be missed by people who choose to vote early, but um, parties really have to uh, adjust to that and realise that they have to make the case to voters in advance and not just in the final days of a of a campaign. And I, I don't find that a bad thing, really. I think, you know, it's probably not the worst thing in the world if um, if voting is spread over a few weeks and, and uh, politicians and parties can't rely on a last-minute splash that changes the dynamic. Not that it usually does, but I think that's probably a good improvement. Yeah, it, it, it seems to be, I, I think it is positive compared to the situation where you have everyone voting on the day and then there's sort of some scare might spring up in the last few days of the campaign and and the, the other, um, the opposition party can't counter it effectively before it has an impact. So that, that sort of spreading out has its... Um, has its its benefits. Where it becomes a bit of a problem is with the whole issues of uh, campaign costings and so on, which parties tend to release uh, very uh, late in the uh, in the campaign. And uh, maybe this will actually put pressure on parties to uh, be clearer about these issues further in advance. To to summarise the. Um this election has not been a landslide to anyone. We have a continuation of government, but it's quite possible that this government will be in a relatively fragile state, just like it has been for the last three years, and probably won't have much of an easier time getting things through the Senate. So, you know, yeah, Liberals stay in government, but um, it doesn't feel like much of a change, really. I guess we were kind of expecting a change, and here we are. Nothing, nothing much has changed, really. Maybe the government is in a slightly more stable position than it was just before this election, but um, that seems like it's about it. Yes, yeah, I'm sure that if they were offered, if they were offered a, a, a continuation of what they had, they would have taken it instantly. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me. Okay, thanks very much. So be sure to check out the Tally Room and Kevin's blog uh, as results continue to flow in over the next week. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.